The short time mob are extraterrestrial invaders who steal our time when we're not paying attention. If you're paying attention, they can't steal your time. But if you're not paying attention, they steal a few minutes here, a few seconds there, a half hour here, and you're pretty soon there's a whole day gone. You don't know what happened. The short time mob has stolen your time. So the cure is attention, which Aldous Huxley also agreed with in his novel, Ireland, the enlightened uh, ruler of this utopian island has released minor birds that fly all over the island and keep shouting, attention, 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 just so everybody doesn't lose their time and, and drift off. Welcome to the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press and the Robert Anton Wilson Trust. My name is Mike Gathers, and I'll be one of your hosts on this journey. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press, publishing the works of Robert Anton Wilson and other adventurous thinkers. Join us as we explore the world of this iconic writer, Robert Anton Wilson, and the many thinkers who influenced him. In this episode, we will discuss the life and work of Aldous Huxley. Huxley, who curiously died the day Kennedy was assassinated, wrote nearly 50 books of fiction and nonfiction, as well as a wide range of essays and poems. In May of 1953, Aldous Huxley took four-tenths of a gram of mescaline under the supervision of psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond, who, by the way, coined the term psychedelic. Shortly after his mescaline experience, Humphrey and his wife went on a three-week, 5,000-mile road trip touring national parks of the northwest United States, at which point they returned home to Los Angeles, where Huxley spent the next month writing a book about his mescaline experience. The Doors of Perception first published in 1954 and had a huge influence on the psychedelic 60s, inspiring Bob, Timothy Leary, John Lilly, Jim Morrison, Stan Lee, and countless others. In Cosmic Trigger 1, Bob writes that he got interested in mind-altering drugs through a review of Huxley's Doors of Perception in ultra-conservative upstart magazine National Review. In the essay titled Via Mescaline to Swedenborg, in the August 1st, 1956 issue of National Review, historian Russell Kirk took Huxley's reports as scientific evidence for religiosity, remarking, Mr. Huxley's theological suggestions, although very briefly expressed, give sanction to both classical and Christian ideas of heaven, hell, and purgatory. Bob the Materialist also noted the strong implication that consciousness was chemical in nature. Furthermore, Kirk wrote that, quote, only the most dogmatic, old-fangled materialist, unquote, would reject Huxley's report a priori without duplicating the experiment. As a dogmatic, old-fangled materialist, Bob resented this and argued in his head for months. Then, Bob writes, the materialist had his first drug trip on December 28, 1962, in an old slave cabin his family rented in the woods outside Yellow Springs, Ohio. Seven peyote buttons would send Bob into a 12-hour, unrehearsed, and incoherent tour of the vestibule of Chapel Perilous, which he considered a most educational and transcendent experience. Bob notes that this experience took place years prior to the media-induced drug panic of the late 1960s, and that under that particular set and setting, the results could have been much different. Forty trips over the next six months created a yo-yo effect of ups and downs that left Bob alternating between inspiration and exasperation. But, he writes, 
A change in my mind was slowly and subtly beginning to happen. Good morning. Good morning. Good evening. <laughs> so I thought we'd just start by uh, asking about you and your career and how you uh, got interested in Aldous Huxley. Well, um, I've been I've written several uh, literary biographies, initially of some more historical figures, uh, you know, the 19th century. And one of these was Matthew Arnold. Now, Matthew Arnold is a name you don't hear a lot these days, but he's, you know, used to be taken very seriously. And he was actually the uh, great uncle of Huxley, as a matter of fact. Mm. The curious thing is that Huxley never really said very much about him. But he had the same attitude as Huxley of wanting to connect literature and society, you know, and have a, a bigger vision than just be a, a man of letters. I think that's that's, a, that's something that connects them. Generally speaking, I'm a literary biographer and a poet. I've published a lot of poetry. And Huxley has always struck me as being a very interesting person, you know, who had a, as I say, this larger vision of, of society and the world. And he thought a great deal about the way the world was going. And he's very concerned about the direction it was taking. So, you know, he, he was a kind of responsible intellectual, if you like. Nice. We've already sort of mentioned his family a little bit. He had a fairly famous family, right? That's right. His uh, his grandfather was Thomas Henry Huxley, who, uh, who had a nickname in, in his day as Darwin's bulldog, <laughs> because he was a great defender of Darwin and uh, enjoyed getting into intellectual debates about the validity of, of Darwinism. And that inheritance, to my mind, is extremely important because Thomas Huxley was one of, you know, as I say, a major scientific intelligence of the 19th century. And it, some of those genes came down to Huxley, it seemed to me, because he, well, although he was a, an imaginative writer, he had a scientific cast of mind. And I think this is very important when you come to look at his exploration of mental states and and uh, the use of uh, mind-expanding drugs, etc. The scientific starting point is crucial if you're going to try, if you're going to understand him. Yeah. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about his childhood. It sounds like was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, he grew up in a what you might call, I suppose, a comfortable English upper middle class family. But he had a lot of personal traumas. You know, his brother committed suicide. His mother died very early. And he went to the famous English public school, Eton. And as a result of an infection picked up on the playing fields, his eyes were damaged permanently. So for the rest of his life, he would always have diminished eyesight. Um, and one of the interesting things when I was writing his biography was talking to various people about whether, uh, to, to, to what extent he could or could not see and the conflicting opinions about it. For example, he was quite a discerning art critic. Well, you can't be an art critic unless you can see the art. So he wasn't blind, but he was pretty damaged in one eye. And I think this, in, in a sense, it, it, it made him go. It, it was a spur to his travel to places where there was light. He needed light. People who have eye problems often need light. And uh, California, as, as you know, is obviously a place where there's mm. a lot of bright light. And um, I think that's the real reason why he settled there. Well, there are more, slightly more to it than that. He, he, um, 
he, he was on a speaking tour just before the Second World War, and somebody put it to him that he could make a living out of writing for the movies, as a lot of writers thought they could at that time. And like many another writer, he wasn't a great success at it, but by then he decided to settle there. So he did spend some time as a screenwriter, though, in L.A. He, he, he did, but I mean, uh, uh, you know, the it, it, it wasn't really his métier. And, um, you know, you, there are plenty of other examples of this, aren't there, of famous writers who thought this was going to be uh, something they could do. And, you know, you, you need specific skills to be a screenwriter. It's not the same thing as writing a novel. His writing career started extremely early, right? Well, yeah, he he was a pretty precocious sort of chap. He went to, uh, after Eton, he went to Oxford and, um, you know, was very successful and knew all the right people, so to speak. And um, he emerged after the First World War as a kind of, in the, in the, particularly in the 1920s, as a very amusing satirist and very much part of that atmosphere of the 1920s. You know, so I suppose what came to be known as the jazz age, and then as his career developed, he became more serious, so to speak. He wasn't just he began to explore world religions, for example, and the mystical tradition. And I think again, just like the scientific inheritance, this is a very important background if you want to look at his experiments with uh, with, with with drugs, because um, it explains why he was doing it. He um he was into Vedanta Hinduism is that correct? He went to this this man um, Swami Prabhavananda. Remember the librarians in uh, in in the Humanities Research Center at Austin, Texas, used to call him the Swami P. <laughs> they, they mm. it was that uh, difficult to pronounce second name. Uh, yeah, like his friend uh, Christopher Isherwood, um, they were attracted to Eastern philosophy. And the thing about Huxley was he always liked big ideas. And when I said he was interested in religion, I don't mean he, he would never be the type of person who, you know, was a churchgoer or uh, adopting any of the conventional uh, religious forms of expression. He was interested more in mystical philosophy and, uh, and so on. Um, the interesting, um, the significant thing is that he was seeing, I suppose, the limits of pure materialism. He wanted to uh, explore other worlds that he felt were underneath the invisible universe. So you've got somebody with a, a scientific mind who's generated an interest in kind of the big philosophies of mysticism, and that's yes. that's and uh, and um, as I, I have to be, it has to be said, and it, it, this came out in the reaction to the doors of perception when it appeared. Um, his critics didn't like that development of him. Uh, some many of his critics liked him as this rather uh, acerbic satirist of the 1920s. They didn't like Huxley mm. through. <laughs> so, uh, you can see, for example, um, some of the reviews that the, the book had, or the reaction, the very interesting reaction of Thomas Mann, who felt that somehow this was a, a wrong turning that Huxley had taken. Whereas other people, of course, felt the exact opposite. And this is not the Huxley we wanted. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I want to say, perhaps this is the point at which to say it, that I have a chapter on this in my biography, and I am probably more sceptical than many other commentators on Huxley are 
about the success of this experiment. I mean, are you ready to start talking about this? So am I jumping the yeah. gun here? No. no, no. Um, uh, it seems to me that the, the, the outcome of this experiment was uh, more limited than, uh, you know, he might have wished. And I use the word experiment advisedly because he wasn't some kind of recreational drug user or, you know, sort of funky sort of guy. He was a very, even when he lived in California, he looked like a tweedy upper class Englishman. He was very, quite staid in a way. And this famous experiment that took place on the 4th of May, 1953, he had, it, it, it felt like, a scientific experiment. He had this uh, psychiatrist, Humphrey Osmond, in the room with him, making sure it all went okay. He dissolved these grams of mescaline in water. Osmond watched him carefully to make sure it was going okay. Um, The whole thing had the the feel of a scientific experiment rather than some kind of far out man kind of experience you know it was rather because uh, that's the kind of guy he was he was a very serious person anyway he took this masculine solution hoping that this would deliver for him what he wanted i.e some sort of visionary experience some insight into the world other than the immediate uh, material world around him and i don't think it was Although the book <laughs> that he wrote about it and the later one, Heaven and Hell, were extremely successful. And today, there are, these are the books that people read. They read that and they read Brave New World. And many of his novels are not read much anymore. So it, clearly it, it struck a chord with people. I remember I read it as a teenager. You know, it, 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 it was a book that had a kind of a, an aura of some way. I remember the record cover of... Um, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band with this range of faces. There he there was Huxley in the middle of them. You know, he was he was part of the the 60s culture, if you like, except that he, you know, he certainly didn't look like a, as I say, a cool guy. Tweedy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he wasn't like, I mean, he, he met Timothy Leary, for example. Now, Timothy Leary was completely different. He was a big advocate of, you know, just this is great, you know, have fun, you know, and all the rest of it. Whereas um, Huxley was remained uh, in control and saw it as a scientific experiment. He, he did say that he was a very poor visualizer. And I think this comes out that he doesn't really, didn't really, um, he, he wanted to see visions. He wanted to uh, turn into William Blake for a mm. moments. It didn't work. So he, he then shifted his ground and said that it was, what he was seeing was reality. He wasn't having subjective visions, but he was looking at reality in a more intense sort of way. And there's that famous passage where he said he he felt like Adam on the morning of creation. You know, he he saw reality as if it was something different, something fresh. And this is precisely the sort of thing that his critics were just, you know, laughing at because they felt that this was all a, a lot of nonsense, really. It's hard to communicate that experience to people that haven't had it. Yeah, I mean, you see, how, how do, uh, almost it is impossible. Um, I mean, if you go back to the 19th century, the famous um, book by Thomas de Quincey, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, um, I mean, his attempts to describe taking opium in the 19th century, so many people, so many poets like Coleridge and all these people, describing 
it's the genre of describing drug trips is, can be very tedious because you can't recreate for the for the reader that that experience that you had. Uh, I don't think so. He, when the book eventually appeared, um, the Doors of Perception, in which he described this experience, it was kind of criticised from two directions. From one, the people like the the Swami that I mentioned, who felt that to attain to these kind of mystical insights, you had to follow a path of spiritual discipline. You know, you had to work at it for a long time, not just take a swig of uh, a mind-expanding drug. That was one criticism. The other criticism was of people like, um, as I say, Thomas Mann, who who felt that this was um, a betrayal of the the rationalist ethos that 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 he that he felt modern mind should uh, express. And I I I'll just sort of quote you briefly what Mann said. He says he acknowledged that the book Doors of Perception was selling like mad. He said it's an altogether I do not want to say immoral, but must say irresponsible book, which can only contribute to the befuddlement of the world and to its incapacity to meet the deadly serious problems of the times with intelligence. Very much the rational man reacting against an idea that there is a, there is a reality that can be accessed by psychedelic drugs. Did the um, experiment seemed to, we're talking the experiment with mescaline, uh, did that seem to shift him and his perspective at all? I mean, he went in with this very scientific mind and, and, and wrote about it from a very scientific place and doors of perception, but do you get the sense that it left a lasting impression, that it changed him in any way? Well, I don't think that it did, frankly. Uh, as I say, the, the continuing popularity of the book and and, and the whole story might might seem to argue otherwise. But I don't feel that if you look at what he went on to write and and, and say, and he he was, certainly wasn't an habitual uh, user. He may have been one or two other you know, these strictly controlled experiments, but he wasn't a recreational drug user by any uh, stretch of the imagination. When he died on his deathbed, his wife, um, his second wife is said to have injected him with LSD. I mean, I use, I put it that way because I'm not 100% sure that that's what happened. But anyway, that's what, that's the official version. And of course, we don't know what, <laughs> what he experienced. We'll have to take that on trust. Um, so, no, so no, I don't think it was a, it was a radical alteration of his um, perspective. But j j just to sort of go back a little briefly to 1945, when he published this book, The Perennial Philosophy. This was bef when he was starting this process of trying to understand mysticism, for, for want of a better shorthand phrase. That, that was nothing to do with drugs. That was an anthology almost of, of writing about philosophy and that's that's how the experience that's how the exploration started and the drug experiments came later so his mind was always disposed towards the belief that we the material world was not enough if you might somehow put, might put it like that so uh, in, in that sense he always continued to with the, with the, with that kind of mental disposition it's just that i don't think the drug experience altered him to, to answer your question um, others may dispute that uh, but I, I don't see any evidence that 
that it was it was a, it was a radical transformation of his uh, creativity, for example. It wasn't life changing experience or anything. I, I I don't think so. As I say, yeah. others will will dispute that. But. And you're you're skeptical of the uh, LSD administration on his deathbed. Could you say a little bit more about that? Just what in terms of where your skepticism comes from? Well, well exactly. Yes, uh, good question. Apart from the natural skepticism of any biographer, we'd like to have, have evidence, and there is no evidence except what his wife wrote in her memoir. Um, perhaps I'm being unfair. Let's let let's. I'm, I'm not accusing her of being a liar. You know, if, if that's what she said happened, then I suppose it happened. I just um, it's a curious moment because we don't know how could we possibly know a dying man what the effect of of that had on him, what he saw, what he felt. We just simply don't know. So it's kind of a bit difficult to um, say anything intelligent about that. Sure. Big unknown. Fair enough. I wanted to ask about, um, there's a, a sort of metaphor he uses in uh, The Doors of Perception, where he talks about the reducing valve of consciousness, I think is the phrase that he uses. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um and he talks about bypassing the brain, you know, because of course that's, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but isn't that what Messerman does? It, re it, it reduces the flow of blood sugar to the brain or something like that. So it, it was as if this, this, this massively cerebral person was trying to escape you know, the, the Huxley inheritance, you know, of always having to be scientific and rational and, and so on. He wanted to bypass that, yeah and uh, try and get through to these other levels of reality, which he definitely believed in. I mean, I, he may have had some, may not have been terribly successful by the route of mind-expanding drugs, but he never lost his interest in or his belief in the fact that the material world that we see around us isn't the whole story, that there are underlying depths and, and this is what he got really from from the the um his explorations of eastern philosophy and i mean this question of of influence and where people get things from i mean there's an interesting example in brave new world now there's a russian dystopian novel by samyatin called we and a lot of people think because of the extraordinary similarities of some of the details in those two novels we and Brave New World, that Huxley derived some of his ideas from that book. As a matter of fact, he hadn't read it. He could have read it because it appeared a few years before his, and, and even a, a translation from the Russian appeared. So it, he could have read But there's absolutely no reference in any of his writings or correspondence or anything. There's no evidence that he'd, he'd seen it. But two highly intelligent writers <laughs> writing at the same time, confronting the same phenomena, often do get to the same place, even though you can't trace the exact line of influence. They're simply alive at a particular time and, and things are happening to the consciousness and their perception and, and they get to the same end. What do you think in the, in the long run was, you know, maybe not the most popular, but the most important of, of his books? Well, I suppose you'd have to say Brave New World. That's the one that sells most copies that's the one that people continue to read and which um in my view still speaks to the state of society now i think it's still relevant so i think that's the one that, that, that makes the most impact but the two but the doors of perception also is i mean i would say those are the 
the two uh, best-selling Huxley titles by far. Yeah. His essays and short stories of the 1920s are probably, you know, on the back burner at the moment. I wonder if there's sort of a thread between his satirical work and the utopic, dystopic, you know, sort of the, the social critique there. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, I think that's... Brave New World is... I mean, if you compare Brave New World with Orwell's 1984, you can see that there's much more, as it were, knockabout satire in Brave New World. I mean, a lot of it is quite comic, um, although it's underlying serious. So so that's where he he was using those, those sort of satirical stills. I mean, a satirical tradition is very strong in... In, uh, in British writing, you know, I mean, so many writers like that kind of mode of of expression. I don't think uh, Thomas Mann wrote any <laughs> comic satires. Uh, so yeah, and 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 the reason why I say Brave New World was, um, in my view, relevant and still, is because he was portraying there a world where, as he put it in his famous phrase, we learn to love our own slavery and that we and you compare what's happening now you know mm. we, the way we allow the tech giants to monitor us day and night they they didn't make us do that at the with a you know the, the point of a rifle we vol- volunteered the information for them we we went along with it and so that kind of willing uh, march into 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 control it seems to me very interesting, and it contrasts with Orwell's idea that it was all, you know, the jackboot in the face. This was Huxley's vision was of a, a kind of consumer society in which people surrendered their independence and critical faculties. You know, so I, I think that's why it's, it speaks to us, to me, almost more powerfully than than Orwell. Yeah. So then it seems like in California he gets a little bit more into. Eastern philosophy and, and meditation and vegetarianism, it says. In other words, the popular idea of California from people. Yeah, doing the whole L.A. thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, to some yeah, to some extent, there was a place called the Farmer's Market in uh, L.A. that they always used to gather and meet in. And and he he did have some peculiar dietary um, obsessions and things like that. You know, if you look at the photographs of him at that time, you know, he just looks like a sort of... A rather old-fashioned old Englishman uh, who strayed in California. I, I had a wonderful story. When I was researching the book, I went to interview his second wife, Laura, at their home in in, in Hollywood. Um, and we sat on the back veranda, and there were those letters, the white letters, Hollywood on the side of the thing. And she said that one day her neighbor said she saw Huxley come out of the house to put some a bag in the trash and she said the way he did it, you know, he has his tweedy suit and he, he put this down. And he was like a sort of one of those um, figures in the, in the sort of the court of St. James, you know, there's sort of a kind of old fashioned elegance about him, which wasn't really, you know, what people would, you know, the caricature of, of um, laid back sort of Californian uh, style. You know, he was, so he, 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 he was a paradoxical figure really i think and paradoxical as a as a sort of an icon of the drug culture because again this is something that his wife told me 
that that he uh, wasn't very happy about the 60s drug culture he felt it was mm. um, but she may have been saying that to distance him from the from that wilson kind of felt like the doors of perception was responsible for changing society's view of psychedelics from you know the psychomimetic or miming psychosis to the the, the psychedelic model I was wondering if you if you thought that that was conscious on Huxley's part, or if there's any if that view came from his mysticism, maybe, or um, I don't know. I mean, th- it's interesting that he chose this man Humphrey Osmond, who was a psychiatrist living in Canada at the time. I think, though he's British, he was very interested in in the sort of therapeutic uses of of drugs, um, and that's how he came to Huxley's in, uh, attention. Wilson sort of credits the book with changing people's view of psychedelics from just miming like what it's like to be a crazy person, basically, to having this. Yes. I mean, in that case, in that case, I think, yes, he, he did. I mean, he, he, he was interested in some sort of positive utility of this experiment. He wanted it to, um, to be helpful into exploring the principally exploring the human mind. I'm not sure that he would necessarily share uh, um, wouldn't disagree with, but it, I mean, obviously, Osmond, as a practicing psychiatrist, would have a, a practical interest in in uh, in using drugs in a in a constructive way to help his patients. But uh, perhaps he re- was for him, it was just a, a, an intellectual experiment, I suppose. I think he claimed to have invented the word psychedelic. You know, I mean, I'm not just two Greek words putting together, mind moving. You know, it's not right. Uh, it's not a fairly obvious uh, kind of thing to do. It certainly seems like uh, Doors of Perception helped legitimize psychedelics. We have this tweedy, straight-laced British intellectual that's taking this scientific approach to this this drug. And and as you're describing it, it's interesting because it you know he he was very serious, but it did have this therapeutic structure to it, like we are now starting to see with psychedelic therapy that's emerging you know, into the mainstream where we have a, a trained clinician administering the, the chemicals and, and sitting in on the experience. But that book does seem to have brought a lot of legitimacy. It's interesting you say how um, there's a certain force behind it in a way. Like I read it in high school long before I had any any psychedelic experience. And I remember just being really deeply impacted by it. It's It's a book that has a presence. Oh, it does, and I think that explains why it's still, still read, you know. And and you're right; it it, it was a kind of. Uh, I mean, I suppose you might say it made psychedelic drugs uh, intellectually respectable because here was the mm. great intellectual endorsing it, writing about it, in uh, talking about Blake and so on, um, making it seem like a very serious activity rather than just. Um, I always get this phrase wrong. Turn on, turn on, tune in, or tune in and turn on. I forget what the order is. Turn on, tune in, drop that's out. It. That's it. <laughs> you know, uh, it, with him, he made it seem like a very serious kind of um, intellectual endeavor, and so it, it it made the whole thing look respectable. Um, whereas some people might want want it to be unrespectable. Unre- un- that's part of the fun. There's a a, a theme. With Huxley, as, as I'm getting, of, of the world just kind of heading in the wrong direction uh, after 
you know, Hiroshima after the concentration camps that maybe he's also growing up in the decline of the British Empire and it seems to have some urgency about how we need to change how we're doing things because we're headed in the wrong direction. And I think you hinted at that earlier when we started out. I think that's what Brave New, New World was was trying to do. He, he he spoke a lot in the 50s and, and 60s of, about the what he called the over-organized society. He felt that we were um, we were too much being directed by uh, the, the the way society was moving. Because and here, that's the voice of the traditional English liberal. You know, the idea of the individual being free and making their own choices and making their own decisions rather than this surveillance society, which we, surveillance capitalism, as it's now known, where we're controlled at every turn. That was anathema to him. And I think most of his writing was trying to, to warn, if you like, about that. And maybe he saw the potential of psychedelic drugs as a way of not just bypassing the brain, but maybe bypassing all these bad things happening in society, that it was a, a loosening up people's minds, making them open again so that they weren't easily controlled and manipulated. In his day, and you know, he died in 1963, on the same day as JFK was assassinated. Hmm. At that time, it might have seemed that in the height of the Cold War, that it was you know totalitarianism, communism, etc., was the was the threat to individual liberty. Now we see it coming from other sources. You know the the, the manipulations and the monopolies of the tech giants. I think he would have got stuck into that one very very firmly. There's a, a quote here. I'll, I'll paraphrase, but we need to start quickly thinking in terms of ecological terms rather than power politics. Oh, oh, yes, yes. That, I mean, he was a proto-green by, by uh, absolutely, and felt that we were, um, you know, he would have he would have endorsed all the ideas about our the damage that we're doing to the planet and so on. I mean, he he, he would have been firmly behind. So there's a big part of his his concern is is in, in the direction we're headed was also ecology and I mean he could, he would never, he could never have dreamed in 1960 the point where we've got to now with our, the state of the planet. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about Island, the utopic oh, novel, right? Yes. Uh, now, I mean, what's interesting about that was that that was a kind of like that was the kind of antidote to Brave New World. Brave New World was a dystopia uh where drugs uh, sorry i should have mentioned this earlier the, in brave new world the drugs obviously were used as a way of softening people's brains so to make it easier to control them uh, in ireland i think it was his attempt to try and paint a picture of a positive utopia and um <laughs> most people prefer brave new world you know people people prefer the, to read about the the bad story than the, rather than the good story. And uh, perhaps it was just felt, some people felt it was a little bit too woolly because it was trying so hard to be, you know, describe a positive sort of uh, society. I mean, if you look at the utopian tradition from Thomas More onwards, islands are often <laughs> central to them. You know, there's, the, there's sort of these, these places where everything is, is right as opposed to everything is wrong. It's not a book that really excites me as much as his other stuff, I must say. Um, 
probably for that reason. I, I think it was a little bit too um, too earnest, in my view. I mean, I, I once was on a very, very brief um, uh, sort of radio phone-in or something, and I made this point, a little bit like the Swami, who felt that you, you couldn't get into a, uh, a state of alternative consciousness just by popping a pill, which I would would have thought would be probably Huxley's position. And some very angry person came on the line and said, absolutely not, you know, because he was a great defender of psychedelic drugs and said, it's, it's, you know, you, you, it's, it's, it's a direct route and, you know, don't, don't rubbish this. So I know there are a lot of people out there who don't like you talking sceptically about um, mm. psychedelic drugs. And I suppose, you know, I, mean, I myself, for example, have never, never used them and never been tempted to use them, but I don't. No one wouldn't prevent other well, people from doing so. I think Wilson had, I think he felt the insight you could get from escaping your conscious filter was important. But throughout his life, he was also doing meditation and yogic exercises and stuff like that. Because I, I think he also agreed that you could pop a pill and sort of get a, a glimpse through the window, but you couldn't pop a pill and just become enlightened. He definitely had a had a very very scientific view of of the experiences. I mean, in the Doors of Perception, Huxley mentions Blake. Now, Blake was a visionary individual who could see see things by drinking a glass of water. <laughs> you know, he didn't need uh, mescaline. You know, he was and Huxley wasn't like that. He said, you know, he's a poor visualizer. He was a um, brain heavy sort of individual and um he couldn't do that sort of thing but he wished that he could when you when we we speak about the reducing valve i think our our uh, our man robert anton wilson would would say that we all have a, a unique reducing valve that creates and shapes our perception of the world and psychedelics kind of opens us up and makes us realize how subjective our experience really is. Um, and that, that was kind of one of his core philosophies, how we're each kind of have a unique view of the world that makes us all very subjective. And it's a whole rabbit hole that, that you can go down with that. But philosophically, there's also just an idea that Huxley had this notion we just spoke about how, you know, we're, we're kind of headed in the wrong direction here as a society and we really need to make some big changes before we run into catastrophe. And uh, Wilson had a, could be seen as almost continuing that tradition in his own small way of just very concerned about the way things are going, growing up in a, you know, a nuclear armed society and all these things. And, and, so really doing his best to kind of wake people up as, as best he could to some of the, the harsher realities we're facing and create some optimism and hope for the future. Do you think that meditation and his, his mystical studies gave him more success at, at maybe reaching some of those visual experiences than psychedelics? That's a very good question. I, I, I think that could be true, yes, yes. But that, com that comes back to whether I'm right to say about the, this famous um, May morning in California in 1953 was, was a bit of a letdown, which I, I suppose I argue that I'm arguing that it, that it was, uh, whereas that earlier exploration was, well, it's much more 
profound in a way. He, you know, he read many more books. He explored many more thinkers in that earlier book. And for someone like him, that probably was the, the, the way forward. But the thing is, that was purely an intellectual exercise, whereas the experiences he was describing in The Doors of Perception were more, nearly said more real, perhaps that's, that's not the right word to use, but more deeply felt, more, more bodily in a sense than, than these, these uh, cerebral explorations of, of past philosophy. It's interesting, his friend in California, Christopher Isherwood, was they, they both shared this interest in these Eastern mysticism. And maybe Isherwood took that particular strand more seriously, took it further, was more committed to it than Huxley was. Okay. Well, just, just switching gears a little bit here, one of our uh, other hosts on the, on the show mentioned a, uh, an essay. I believe it's called The Best Picture, an essay on uh, Piero della Francesca's Resurrection of Christ. It's, it's, it's an essay about this fresco that he considers to be the, the best uh, picture out there, and it talks about the journey you have to go to to get to this place and this and that. But it, he talks about art in a very, you know, he's such an intellectual, but at the same time he talks about this art, and uh, it's about the authenticity of expression of the artist and the authenticity of the artist. There's just a different side to Huxley that kind of comes out for me when I read this brief essay. Do you have a, a sense for that? Just, you know, beyond the intellectual, I guess, is what I'm asking. In, in oh, yes. Oh, 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 very definitely. I mean, I remember that I remember that essay, but not, it's so long since I've read it, not freshly enough to say anything <laughs> sensible. Sure, sure. <laughs> but I know what you mean. Oh, oh yes, I, th I, I think... Yes, I wasn't trying to suggest, I suppose, that that um, what is described in the Doors of Perception was faking or, or something like that or, you know, cooked up in some way. I think it was very genuine what he was describing, you know, describing how he looked down at the fabric of his jeans and, you know, <laughs> saw it in a radically different light and so on. I think that was real. I, I think he did see that. So, so those... Those sort of experiences were authentic, absolutely. And for someone who was used to always being the, taking the cerebral route, that was very important for him, you know, to, to as you say, there's kind of opening doors that were uh, previously been closed. I mean, the doors of perception. I wanted to ask what you thought some of his more important correspondences were. It seems like he had a lot of cool, famous correspondences. With we mean with other writers and thinkers, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think I think one thing uh, he, he's, you're right. He, he did indeed. He he uh, communicated with people all, all all over the world and with other people. But he was also rather curiously quite. Um, I think he lived quite a quiet life in a sense. He 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 didn't. Um, I mean, I've just written a paper that I'm giving at a conference uh, shortly about his relationship with D.H. Lawrence, which fascinates me because Lawrence, on the face of it, was everything that Huxley was not. <laughs> you know, he was a he was a almost a shamanistic kind of figure. Sometimes, you know, he ranted and raved, and the exact opposite of the cool intelligence of of Huxley. And yet, they hit it off 
to an extraordinary degree. You might have thought they were the last two people to, to, to click, but they did. And and that's and that tells you something about Huxley, about the way he um his openness to a, you know, he may have been a particular kind of you said earlier, straight-laced Englishman, but he was open to all sorts of other experiences. His his mind was always open. I mean, he even explored, for example, you know, flying saucers. <laughs> you know, most people say, absolute nonsense. But he said, Well, okay, before we say it's nonsense, let's just find out a bit more about it. You know what I mean? So he was always, his mind was always open. He didn't shut anything off. But this, I can't come back to this. When he was writing Brave New World, he was in the south of France in 19, the summer of 1931, writing this book. And he was there with his wife. He knew a few people in the area, but they kept themselves to themselves. He was he was quite a, I don't say isolated, but he he wasn't constantly frequenting the company of other intellectuals. You know, he would correspond with people, but he was his own man, I suppose you might say. What did uh, he and T.H. Lawrence connect on? Well, I mean, some of it would have been this, a, a shared view that the, the world was moving in the wrong direction sort of thing, uh, because a lot of Lawrence's writing, as you know, is, 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 is um, almost ranting about these things, um, though I've got a lot of time for Lawrence. And that uh, I, th- I think I wouldn't say that uh, that Lawrence was a mystic, but he was certainly believed that the logical scientific explanations were insufficient. That you know you had to uh, the imagination and the transforming power of art and so on were more important than than uh, sort of intellectual analysis and getting to the root of these problems. So um, maybe. Maybe Huxley was envious of Lawrence's free, greater freedom of imagination in these things. Uh, but I think Huxley still gets mentioned, still gets talked about, but perhaps not to the same extent. And it's it's fascinating sometimes to meet older people in the UK who who remember read their first encounter with him in you know sort of the nineteen thirties or forties or something. He, he was a huge hugely important to a lot of people as a kind of uh, almost like as a kind of liberate you know he was someone who was saying something different and i don't think to be a frank, perfectly frank with you i don't think he's having that impact now on young people they might the two books we keep mentioning they'd probably be aware of i mean i remember i was doing some research in california in um, the huntington library and i was staying in a motel and opposite the motel was a college and i went in there to get some stationery somewhere, pad and i saw that there were some books and they were clearly the course books for the students there and i just sort of walked along these bare white shelves these piles of course books and i came to brave new world there it was you know so it's obviously still on american college syllabuses it's still people are reading that but i don't think he's the liberator the interesting question is who is the huxley of today and say saying say in the uk and i find that a difficult one so i'm, I'm not going to try and answer that <laughs> but, uh, but he, he, he certainly was a very uh, influential for a lot of people that concludes our episode thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed it we invite you to visit hilaritaspress.com and buy all the books 
And if you haven't already, check out the Starseed Signals, Bob's love song to Timothy Leary from the early 70s, which went unpublished and recently unearthed by Adam Gorightly from the archives of Discordian OG Robert Newport. And you can find our podcast at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Ross of Hilaritas Press and the Robert Anton Wilson Trust. A big thank you to poet and biographer Nicholas Murray for taking the time to talk with us. Look up Nicholas online at nicholasmurray.co.uk, where you can find his Huxley biography as well as his latest book on poetry, City Lights, and much more. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Reeves, for technical production and music, and thank you to our producer, Ian, for putting it all together. We look forward to sharing our interview with John Higgs for Episode 4 on Timothy Leary, which will be available on the 23rd of December. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor et hilaritas. Attention, attention, attention. Thank you.